Welcome to On the Continent, where you want to talk European football, and we're going to do it. I'm Dotson Adibayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Miguel Delaney. On today's show, it's bubble trouble in Serie A. And we're doing the doubles on divided loyalties of international football, dual nationality dilemmas. And what on earth is going on in Real Madrid, for real? Gosh, this uh, bubble trouble in Serie A, can they not do what all the other leagues are doing, which is to stay within their camps? What's going on there? Well, I guess we're going to talk about this is where international football has, has, has muddied the waters. And our international football is, as, as we spoke about in the ramble, considered as the, the ultimate inconvenience, even if it is necessary for a, a lot of associations and especially poorer national associations um, to be able to feed their own programmes and feed grassroots programmes and, and, and what have you. Um, but there has been a sense in Serie A, um, particularly that clubs have been struggling to keep a lid on it for uh, uh, the last little while in the second wave. Keep a lid on what? Um, the, the spread of COVID. And um, you, you looked at the weekend where local health authorities, and of course, if we go back further in the season, um, Napoli said they weren't allowed to travel by their their local health authority. And so therefore, that's why they didn't turn up for their game at Juventus. They were given a point deduction and a 3-0 defeat, which was appealed. But nevertheless, that, that decision has stood this week, I suspect there'll be several other legal stages to that, but we'll, we'll wait and see. But with um, the, the, the sense that teams feel they need to lock it down, and teams in particular regions, the health authorities feel they need to lock it down, um, you've had uh, a series of clubs, including uh, Fiorentina, Sassuolo, Lazio, Roma, all saying, at least initially, that their players couldn't go on international duty this week now for some that are on friendlies maybe this isn't such a big deal and you know there's been agreement from um the figc who deal with the italian national team that um players from certain clubs like roma for example will not come and and join up with the squad however we'll look at fiorentina in, in particular because um they've that they they had a, a, a couple of players who have have big games ahead of them. Um, you look at uh, Dusan Vlaovic. You look at Nikola Milenkovic, their their centre back, who uh, want to be involved with Serbia against Scotland in what is a, a game for a, for a ticket to the Euros next summer. It's, it's a big game. It's it's, it's not a fluffy friendly. And um, then you look at Lazio, and we'll come back to Lazio in in greater depth in a while, but. Um, their player, Sergei Milinkovic-Savic, him and uh, Alex Kolarov of Inter, they saw that this sort of um, regional local health authority decision was coming. So as soon as their games were done at the weekend, they were straight off to Belgrade to avoid any possible ban on a private jet. And this is where the lines get blurred, I think, because Milinkovic-Savic is such an important player for them. He scored the, the, the two goals that saw them through Norway in, in, the, in the last round. And at one point, it did look as if Serbia could be absolutely decimated for this huge game. Now, not only that, there's, there's no suggestion that Milinkovic-Savic and Kolodov have done anything wrong. But Vlaovic and Milenkovic, who've left Fiorentina post-bubble being imposed. Now, 
the Serbian FA have come out and said, look, well, they want to play and if there's a fine to be paid, we'll pay it. Which is, you know... Not the issue. It's not the issue at all. It puts a whole spin on what's really at stake here, doesn't it? Yeah, Miguel, you can understand why clubs are resistant, and there have been resistance pre-COVID to their players getting off in international duty. Are they now using this? It sounds like in Italy in particular that they're using this uh, COVID crisis as an excuse to not release players for international duty. Well, it does. It's yet another aspect of this whole crisis that exposes a bit of a potential fissure in the game. And, I mean, from some perspective, it does seem a little bit illogical. I mean, I suppose the dynamic has changed in the last week, I suppose, with news of the vaccine development and, and all the rest of it, and it is a slightly changed outlook. But um, while COVID is still among us, one of the ways that football can continue is through these extremely tight bubbles. And I have to say, like in leagues like the Premier League, in Spain, in the Bundesliga, it's worked very well. Even numbers of positive tests are very low. But one of the dangers international football does, of course, is that it takes players out of these bubbles and exposes them to a completely different bubble. And just, and it just, I suppose, it's cre- I mean, <laughs> it's put in very basic terms. It it's creates unnecessary movement at a time when movement's supposed to be limited. And I, I know we're going to come on to kind of international football more in the pod later, um, but. It's it, it yeah it, it does just reveal this <laughs> flashpoint in the game but where, and, it, and its tension. Where's the pressure coming from now? Is the pressure coming from the leagues? Is it coming from the clubs? Is it coming from the national teams for players either to stay within their bubbles or uh, to expand the remit of what a bubble is? Well, there's always been a bit of a double edge here in general. Like say for for the game that Andy mentioned with, with Serbia and Scotland. I mean, for the Serbian players. They all want to play. So despite clubs having reservations over kind of their players travelling, they don't want to irritate what are their assets by saying, well, you can't go to this game that means so much to your career. And that's always been, I mean, say if you go, if you go back to like even, you know, the way Ferguson treated international football, it was much the same. Um, but of course, there's this, COVID has added so many more complications to this dynamic. So is it the teams from Rome that are creating a particular problem for Italy. You've mentioned Roma and you said you wanted to carry on talk about Lazio. Yeah, and um, I, th- I think it is worth coming on to those. I mean, with Roma, um, they had a, a number of positive cases that followed their win against Genoa at the weekend in which Henrik Mkhitaryan scored a, a hat-trick. Um, he dedicated his hat-trick to Edin Dzeko, who'd been diagnosed with with, with COVID, the, 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 the captain. And then five other players um, tested positive quite quickly afterwards. And th- this has been something that Italian clubs have, have, have struggled with, uh, locking it down. And uh, they've struggled with dealing with the spread within the club in a way that, I mean, Miguel talked about it. Uh, individual players have tested positive, say, a like Dortmund, for example, yeah. Bayern, but it's not absolutely flown through the squad. Now, I, I don't really want to get onto medical reasons of why this might be, because I don't think we're even slightly qualified for yeah. that. <laughs> However, I wonder if the fact that maybe the bubble's actually working against them in that sense, because the, the bubble should be and complying with um, the 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 um, 
protocol of the bubble should be easier for Italian clubs because, of course, they have this concept of being in retiro. So mm. normally, if either before a big match or when they've been beaten and they need to be like, you know, feathered and tarred in front of the fans, they go in retiro. So they go to a, a training camp, maybe at their training ground, if it's like Milanello or, 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 or something, where they basically live at the training centre for five days or, 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 or whatever. Um, I mean, it's, it's a great idea to, you know, protect your team, but it kind of ensures that everyone will get it, doesn't it? On, on, on the other hand, I mean, it might keep it away from other people, but it ensures that it's going to spread throughout the team. Now, I suspect that there are some teams that think, well, it's international break. Like, maybe this is a good point to... To, to get it out of the way. Maybe I'm being a little bit cynical here. I mean, we'll, we'll come on to Lazio. But what Miguel was saying about cross-contamination with um, international football, it's a really important point because a lot of people have been saying, what's the difference between international games and Champions League games? There's a massive difference yeah. in that it's one club going to a Champions League game or a Europa League game. Whereas you're mixing loads of different players yeah. from loads of different countries, even if they're all originally from the same country, that is the major difficulty. And what a time. I know that it's a coincidence, but there is a political aspect to this, even though we're talking football. What a time for Mkhitaryan to withdraw from the Armenian squad as his country is having to go uh, cap in hand to end the conflict against Azerbaijan. There will be pressure, won't there, from your national teams at the same time to come and represent your country. You say you're loyal to your country. You say that, you know, uh, you do it all for your country. You've chosen to play for your country. Mm. And now suddenly you are being asked by our club not to play for your country. To, to, to zoom out that even further, um, I suppose there, there's almost a wider pressure on why these games which, which are taking place. And, and there's actually been, as Andy's alluded to there as well, there has been questions about not just why these international games are playing, but why there's like three games in a week. And that is basically because A, uh, obviously, the calendar was wiped out from March to June, which meant a, a series of friendly or a series of games were wiped out, uh, which cost fed, individual federations a lot of money. So they had they had to be refound re- re- a place. And B, the uh, the international federations and UEFA feel they did the club game a favour by moving the Euros and creating that space in the calendar. Which That's is, a very good point. Which is basically yeah. why the, the 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 give back is is a is a the last two international breaks involve three games apiece. Now, the bigger question there is why exactly football as a whole is intent on having a full, normal calendar in a season when two months have been cut off it. And we've already seen a bigger question about that with, with injuries. <laughs> and another discussion again. But, that, but that's why this pressure to play as well, as much as anything exists. And you do wonder, I guess we're going to get on to Lazio, whether that pressure has, has led them to this situation where they are at the, the, the moment, where, of course, um, they're um, being investigated at the moment um, by the FIGC um, Disciplinary and Ethics Committee uh, for possibly having played players that they knew had COVID. Um, if you go back to the 1st of November, they're 3-2 um, down at Torino, um, they bring on some. They brought on some subs before that to change it up. One of them, Shiro Immobile, had um, 
been out of the the, the Champions League with a, a, a positive COVID test. He comes on, scores a 94th minute equaliser. Felipe Caicedo scores a 98th minute winner. And then Immobile, who's their top scorer and like arguably their most important player. Goalkeeper, Strakosha, midfielder, Lucas Leiva. That they all sit out of the next Champions League game as well. Now, obviously, Torino crying foul about this. Um, Lazio are saying it's an anomaly because uh, they had some tests done at a laboratory in uh, Avellino, which had the players as clear. The UEFA tests were different. Now, we've got a couple of layers to this because, firstly, obviously people will look at Lazio's integrity and that's what the FIGC's disciplinary committee are, are investigating. Secondly, what has become clear, and of course, there's, I don't think that there's a gap between Serie A's testing and UEFA's testing is necessarily the biggest surprise. What is a big surprise, and what was a big surprise to me, certainly, Miguel, mm. is how there's no standardised testing across Serie A yeah, clubs. I, I was stunned by that, I have to say. And when, you, when you look at the very basics of the stories, I say there's, there's so many strands to it. But just the fact that there could be this discrepancy, I mean, I mean, you would think when ultimately you're putting all these project restarts and kind of, um, you know, these big plans to get football back going again, this should, this should have been one of the one of the basic principles that all testing is standardised to, to absolutely prevent situations like this. But given that, what is the protocol then? If Lazio have fielded players who had tested positive and they've won the game... Does the opposition have a, an argument or a well, legal argument or otherwise? Well, at the very that. least. Yeah. At the very least. Like, really? Yeah, if, you, if, you, if they've knowingly played uh, players who are positive, then it's an even bigger... It's, it's, it's a legal issue. Well, that's a moot yeah. point. If they've knowingly... Nobody's going to admit to that. And that's part of the issue, isn't it? Uh, well, I, I guess, like... They could theoretically be kicked out of the league. They're not going to be kicked out of the league. I don't right. think that for a So what a happens minute. then? What happens to that result? Uh, well, it, we've, we've seen it could get overturned. I mean, we talked about... It could about, get overturned? Yeah, because we, we talked about the um, Juventus-Napoli one before. I mean, the other appeal there was this week was involving Roma. Because in Roma's first se- uh, game of the season, they went to Verona. They drew nil-nil. It was found out afterwards that Amadou Diawara had been on the under 22s list even though he'd turned 23 they said look it's an admin error well they were given a 3-0 defeat so we can see that Italian football that's is strict clearer is, thing though is strict it? on some lesser stuff yeah the reason why I just wonder is because that's much clearer but, with so regards you're, to COVID you're talking about you're talking about intent well, not only intent, but we know with COVID you can have a test which shows that you're positive and actually you at test, sorry, that shows that you're negative and then you go on the field and you're suddenly positive. We don't know when the uh, the infection happened, do we? In terms of football, you, if, you're, if you're going to a court and saying, no, he tested negative. Hmm. When we tested him, he tested negative, went onto the pitch and who knows where you caught COVID. It's, much, hmm. it's, it's a much more difficult thing to prove, I'd have thought, Mika, at the very least. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's true completely. I mean, yeah. and I suppose it's one of the, again, you had, you had another complication to all this that it's just, there's so many grey areas. Gonzalez. Maar 
Okay, we kind of started talking about part of the club versus country in COVID issue. And there is another aspect of this, Miguel, that you have been writing about for a few years, actually, which is uh, when people have a choice between one country and another, people of dual nationality, if you like. Yeah, I mean, it's actually, it's sometimes, I suppose, that puts a bigger question on international football and what it is but not in the same way as whether it should exist. It's more about the kind of, uh, I suppose, the modern fluidity of nationality. And it's probably something that actually, I mean, uh, it, it, my, my migration has always been a part of human, human existence. But it felt like for most of football's history, the idea of eligibility was much more monolithic. And we probably had much more cases, basically, you know, back cases of kind of Argentine players playing for Italy in the 60s or this sort of thing. It was mostly where you were born was where you played. And, and this started to change from the 60s on. And one of the first places it changed was actually Ireland, I think, which has foreshadowed a lot of modern issues for for countries where, obviously now, um, there's so many cases of players with dual nationality, triple nationality. Um, you, you only have to look at, say, at Germany, the number of players who could play for Germany or Turkey. Um, but and That's the classic post-war one, isn't it? Yeah, Germany it, and Turkey. It, yeah. It, exactly, yeah. Uh, and or or it, Tony Cascarino is another classic case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although there's actually always been a bit of a myth about Cascarino because, I mean, there's always been this thing that he actually was never eligible for Ireland. That's not true. Uh, because of the fact he was adopted, it meant he was he, he was actually eligible because he was entitled to a passport. Yeah, it was more uh, it was more his feeling when he found out what had happened rather than the actual eligibility rules, yeah. which were the shock, weren't they? Yeah, yeah that that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but he but, but he was he was always eligible, um, and it's it's something I suppose has become uh, a bit of a you know <laughs> a flashpoint again with Jack Grealish and Declan Rice, who both represented Ireland at underage level. Declan Rice playing three times to the senior team but then ultimately made the switch with an awful lot of debate about, you know, whether they feel Irish, whether they feel English, what, who they'd be closer to. But ultimately this is, and this is an issue that so many more nations are going to have to confront now and basically have to, have to almost adapt to and work around. And it's, it's not just with Ireland, obviously with England, we've seen the cases of both Zaha with the Ivory Coast, Saka with Nigeria, and actually a fair, a fair few players of a Nigerian background in England. And, and this is kind of the reality of international football now. And I do wonder whether football has to change its mindset in that regard, because it, it, it does feel like it's going to have to be almost become a bit more like cricket, which is not, not to say that international representation, but can be transactional, but it has to recognise a certain fluidity and that it's just not as monolithic as what we grew up with. Yeah, and I think there can be a careerist aspect of that. Mm. And I know people find that, a lot of people find that quite repellent in terms of international football. But I don't think that's unreasonable. And why... You know, at some point you're going to have to make a commitment as a as a dual or yeah. or, or, or or triple national player, aren't you? And the fact is, I, I think for for most people, you, you know, if if you've got, you know, you, you have different parts of you, you yeah. have different parts of your background, and you're going to have to commit to one. And if you choose that because you think it will be the best fit your career, fine. But yeah. what what you Miguel know. points out though in the excellent article he wrote for the Independent is that look the the national squads are pursuing these players at a very young age when you yeah. haven't sort of developed a sense of who you are culturally and otherwise and who you want to be. Well, Tim Cahill obviously spent a lot of time extricating himself 
himself for that, was it? Um, yeah. He played for American Samoa, didn't he? Yeah, when exactly. He, when, he, when he was on holiday, when he was 14. Yeah. And uh, he's, and, he's and spent actually, ages getting himself into a point where he's actually eligible to play for Australia again. And, and that should actually have that should have no bearing really on what is his senior career. career. No, and I, I think it's exactly. why it's right the players actually can switch after underage. I mean, and you, I think the point you mentioned there about the careerist angle, I think that's very interesting. And have, without being unfair, I think that's a point of view you hear more from people who don't have any experience of dual nationality. Right. I mean, uh, because I mean, I suppose to put it in basic terms. I mean, um, obviously, as, as you can hear from my accent and my name, I'm Irish Spanish, and I've always fe- felt as Irish as I do Spanish. And when it comes to, like, say, the 2002 World Cup, they played against each other. I felt quite emotionally flat during that game because I didn't really know who to support more. But it almost came down to it was almost this transactional element to it, which is almost career in its own way. Where, well, I think Spain could actually win this World Cup. So it might be it might be better for them to go through. But on the flip side, if Ireland go through, they could have their best World Cup ever. So it was actually genuinely hard to weigh up. But it was looking at it in those terms. So can you imagine for a player who feels, say, as Irish as he does English or as German as he does Turkish, inevitably it's going to come down to who you think will give you the better international career. Mm. And that, that's, yeah, okay, it is careerist to a certain degree, but it's only after the emotion comes into it, which is, which is, and basically that in many cases they can't decide between the two. So the way you decide is with something that's a bit, a bit colder about it. Yeah, it's a modern dilemma, Andy, and I wonder whether it really matters. I mean, that's really the question, isn't it? Can you imagine saying, oh, well, this World Cup, um, they didn't really win the World Cup because they played uh, a player that wasn't born in their country. Who cares? That's the sort of thing that Jean-Marie Le Pen came out with after the 1998 World Cup. Exactly. Isn't it? And And it um, it is racist, actually. Yeah, yeah. From the uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen point of view. But it goes back to the ultimate, you know, litmus test that uh, Norman Tebbit posed years ago about, you know, who do you support in cricket, doesn't it? England or the West Indies? How British are you? But he posed it as a question to the spectator, to the Mm. fan, to the citizen. Whereas actually in football, it's a question for the footballer. Yeah. And only for the footballer, I would have thought. It's got nothing to do with everybody else. If only that was the case. I I think the the families have a huge part in it. And, you know, I think a lot of of players particularly don't want to disappoint their their, their families. That was the case of Declan Rice. Right. There was a huge family influence. Uh, and then there was that story that his dad was disappointed, and his dad is second generation Irish, right? So it was obviously like it's it's it, he's not quite say a Gary Breen or Kevin Coban who like both their parents were Irish, yeah. With, with, with Declan Rice, it was that it was that next generation on. Um, I mean, the Nabil Fakir one was interesting because a lot of people thought he would choose Algeria instead of France, mm. and um, his his dad was I think quite keen at one point for him to choose Algeria. And basically, he had all this long-lost family from Algeria sort of calling him up at two in the morning going, you've got to make sure the kid makes the right decision. You've got to make sure the kid makes the right decision. And in the end, he said, Nabil, I think you should pick France. Can you imagine, and, and that's what that's what happened. Can you imagine the pressure? Like, people go on about careers. Can you imagine the pressure on a, on a kid to make that decision? Yeah, like, well, in fact, they, they had a bit of footage from uh, Algerian TV after Fekir had made his decision. And it was all these family members that he'd never met Saying, oh well, you know, I, th- I think he's he's been led astray. It's it's, yeah. it's it's terrible. We used to be such a good boy, and now he's playing for France. Yeah, well, yeah. imagine having to put up with that. I know completely. Well, look, look, look at that. So, I mean, I don't want to, don't want to name them, but see today on Wembley Way, 
there's that adver- ad- advertisement for a company um, that basically presents Grealish and Rice as snakes, which is which right. Is, which is pretty like <laughs> when you, when you stand back a bit, like come on, you can do without that. Like it, it, it's 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 ridiculous. Um, it, it begs a question about what the purpose of international football well, is. Though, I mean, they, I suppose because the fundamental. I was, I was for the for the piece I did. I was talking to to Gary Breen about this. Uh, and Stephen Holmes, because like, because I wanted to get into the issue of kind of Ireland's relationship with England, which obviously is predicated in a lot of, uh, uh, Eng- well, English-born players of Irish descent appearing for the country of their background, uh, and we, so there's obviously a lot of fluidity to that as well. And it was br- uh, Gary did sum it up quite quite um, succinctly. Now, in international football, I suppose, without putting too fine a point in it, our best against your best. But then, of course, the deputy the definition comes down to what your best or our best actually is. And that's where it kind of gets fluid and all that. And I suppose we've always had this romantic notion of international football, in con- where the club game is, I suppose, it's, it's, it is so transactional. You can bring in players and change your squad. International football is kind of down to a limited pool. But do you think but- because recruitment is so nuanced in the club game now, international football has almost tried to get a little bit closer to that, really? I mean, does, yeah. If, if you look at, say, let's let's look at... Um, athletic Bilbao who mm. only take um, Basque players for example the amount of corners they have yeah. had to cut I mean they've stretched the, yeah. the limits at, at, at some point haven't they and you know they've they've trampled all over not just local clubs they've you know caused a lot of beef with Real Sociedad of course and it's, I think it's just a reality that you know football not well not just football all sorts of sport it's about marginal gains all the time and and this is this is very much part of that isn't it yeah completely yeah and it, I mean it was actually it, it has been almost one of the more interesting aspects of international football in that sense I mean I was thinking about this in relation in, in the last international break and countries that say because obviously, if you're managing a big club team, you have a, you have a problem in your team. You can just go out and sign a player that fits. Mm. In international football, you can't do that. And it almost brings a certain purity of management that managers have to work work a way around this problem. One of the classic recent examples was basically Spain Euro 2012. Didn't have a striker because David Villa was injured or didn't have a, a striker of sufficient quality to start. So what Del Bosque did was very intelligent. Had this kind of, this aspect where the all the attacking midfielders would take turns almost running forward yeah. and it was it was trying to bamboozle defence and that's a really creative tactical solution um and it, that, i mean for for all the the international game has fallen behind the club game in quality it is one um fascinating element of it but it it does make international management international coaching so much different doesn't it yeah. i mean if you look at the way that luis felipe scolari for example um even as a brazilian led portugal in uh, euro 2004 and so much of it it wasn't about tactical detail he really appealed to because he's that chess beating yeah. sort of coach he's like i want everyone in portugal to get get the portuguese flag out on their balconies yes, and, and they did all that sort they of stuff did. And, 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 they, and they absolutely did and mm. i wonder how that works when you think of like a, a relatively new team like um kosovo who've only mm. just been admitted to uefa club competition you look at one of their outstanding players valon berisha who played 20 t- he's born in sweden p- brought up in norway played 20 times for the senior team of Norway before Kosovo existed. And I think, you know, it's fair enough. I think most people would say it's fair enough that he has to be allowed to to switch over and to, to play for Kosovo. But when you're managing Kosovo and you've got people who've grown up in um, Norway, in Spain, 
in Germany. Mm. Culturally, how do you pull that together? Normally, you, you have that you have that common touchstone of like shared experiences, yeah. shared childhoods in a way. But maybe that's not the case in international football. I mean, I remember talking before the 2010 World Cup to Rabba Sedan, who was the, the coach of Algeria. Now, he had one little spell in the Middle East, but he'd done all his playing and coaching in Algeria. And he was saying to us, well, basically the squad is, is full of French boys now. So mainly with Algerian mm. parents, but who've, who were born in France, who've grown up in France, who've come through French academies. And he's like, I, I just don't know how to relate to them. He, well, was, yeah. he was like in yeah. his 60s. And by they, then. they expect they, they, certain things that maybe the local Algerian footballer wouldn't expect. For sure. Know. Yeah. And that obviously makes, uh, it makes complete logical sense as well, because, because of A, the huge Algerian migration, the diaspora in, uh, in France, shall I say. Mm. And also because France, like England and Germany and, and Spain, is almost like they're, they're one of those big European countries, big wealthy European countries that have essentially industrialised youth production. Yes. Uh, so it, it stands to reason that if you, if you if a lot of your players go through that system, they'll be the standard for international football. I think we're all agreed. Uh, there is a certain integrity about international football that should be maintained. I, I think, you know, as you said, Mikhail, the, the, the coaching, the purity of the coaching, the, the restrictions uh, to work with what you've got and available to you, but clearly yeah. the, the rules as they are aren't well, fit well, for well, purpose, well, are I wouldn't for the go, modern world. I wouldn't go that far, but I do think that the globalist nature of modern society means that, and in fact, my, my migration is a much greater part of, of life, both out of necessity and out of choice. Uh, I think it's, an, it's something else that basically puts a stress on international football, without, without overstating it too much. But in, in saying that, I think it's just, a, I, I think it still points to the value of international football. But uh, I mean, by the same token... I do think a lot of people should give these these kids with dual or, or triple or even quadruple nationalities, cut them a bit of slack. And incidents like you mentioned with Fakir and even with Declan Rice uh, seem very unfair. How should they get around it then? How should the... Uh... I, 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 funnily enough, I actually think it's one area where, and I know a lot of Irish people disagree with this in relation to the Grealish and Rice rules, but I actually think it's one area where the rules are fair. Now, like Brian said to me today for that piece... He felt hoodwinked by Rice. And I can understand that. And there was a lot of shock, say, in the Irish camp that he'd played three three full caps. Kevin Kilbarn said the same. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. He played full, three full games. He seemed very invested in the, in the setup and the whole the whole Irish thing, if you like, and then went and switched. Well, that's but, no different from a club player yeah, who seems yeah. very invested in the club and then goes and switches. Isn't yeah, it? but then if, if you feel as Irish as you do English, I think it's almost... It's almost inevitable. It's almost logical that you would basically try both. Um, now, obviously, you don't want a situation where players can switch back and forth. But I think to recognise the modern world, you have to allow a certain amount of fluidity. And I think that's what the current rules do. Okay, look, there is one question that every OTC listener will be asking, even as we pontificate about this, which is, and I'm not going down the Jean-Marie Le Pen racist route, but nevertheless, would France have won 98 if it wasn't for North Africa and West Africa? No, sure. I mean, they'd have been <laughs> robbed the most of their best players, wouldn't they? <laughs> they'd have Zidane, robbed the Desailly. But, but of, of, of course, French-born, a lot of those players... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fair point, fair point. Yeah, that answers that one.
What on earth is happening to Real Madrid in Spain, Miguel? They are no longer imperious, losing 4-1, was it, to Valencia? Albeit not necessarily from goals in open play. Yeah, uh, it was chaotic, but of a of a type that's becoming more common with uh, with Madrid, in that they're not the not the assured force you would have expected over the last three years. I, I think there's something wider happening here, which I think is that. I mean, obviously, there's the kind of the situation with COVID and, and super clubs like Madrid and Barca weren't actually able to refresh their squad. But that's what it comes down to. Zidane is having to oversee the transition from one team to a new team. Uh, and I think it's a real challenge. And a little bit like Guardiola, we don't know if the challenge he's equipped for. It's a, di- it's a very different managerial task. It's a way different job to the one he had to do the yeah. first time. And you might argue that some of the things he did the first time have not made his job the second time that easier because maybe he didn't bring through some of the younger players to the extent that he might have done. I think you look at a game like this and I think we should touch on Valencia in a a minute as well. But, you know, you look at Marco Asensio and you think there's a player who I thought would be further along yeah, the line yeah, absolutely. now. Now, clearly he's His had... probably the same. Yeah, absolutely. And clearly he's had a, a serious injury in that time. But surely that should have been some of Zidane's remit, particularly with his history with the second team, Castilla. I mean, that was part of the way that Zidane was sold, not not just on the, the, the fact that he was someone who's um, a legend of the club, who knows the club backwards, but he knows who's coming up. And that is something that has, has not always been entirely evident. It has felt that he's lent on a few players who are maybe not quite at their peak anymore for a, a little bit longer. I mean, you know, it, it was like after El Clasico, there was this big discussion on after Luke, Luka Modric's very stylish, but in the end, goal that didn't make any difference to the outcome of the game. There was there was all this talk in in, in the Madrid media of oh, the, the, Lucas should get a new contract, shouldn't he? And you're like, really? Should he? Should he? I, I understand. What Based on that goal, yeah, what, he should what, get a new contract. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what what he's what he's been for them as a player and a leader on the pitch is not in any doubt. Mm. But everything has to come to an end, and it kind of felt like that in this Valencia game as well, in which Marcelo had an, another really wretched game. I understand that there were three Real Madrid players that gave away penalties. <laughs> Talk about sharing the load amongst the back four. You had Zidane's, uh, yeah. uh, Varane, sorry, scoring an own goal and the other three conceding yeah, penalties. Too, too bizarre handball, or too classically VAR handball. Well, actually, Ramos is a bit more well, stupid almost because I don't know why he can do that when, when, you've got, when we've got VAR there kind of almost swatting the ball away. Well, he thinks he can get away with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is kind of part of his yeah, psyche, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, The prince. Um, but you, something you said there, Andy, in relation to kind of how decisions that, that uh, Zidane made in his, in his first spell may kind of count against him now. I think that that's a, a fundamental issue with this transition almost. Now, if you look at Zidane in that, in that those three European Cups. And this was, you know, it's supposedly a classic of the Madrid job in that way. It's what it, it's why they people say it's a job that needs a psychologist rather than an actual coach because it was all about really facilitation. I mean, does, and, does, and he, does that really feel like a great Real Madrid side to you or a great 
European Cup side team? No, it doesn't. If you had no. like, it's like a, a team that kind of with kind of almost a critical mass of talent that surfed the waves of what the European Cup is, and which is an indicator by the fact they so struggled to win the domestic league at the same time. Mm. Um, and they totally but, got away with it in two yeah. of those finals as well. Yeah, didn't they? exactly. And, in, and I mean, so many Bayern Munich were going to rob twice against Madrid yeah. in, in that spell. But but ultimately, that job was about ego management, and it was about indul- It was about a, a figure that knew how to work who knew, instinctively knew how to work those big players because he'd been in one. And now, the the difference with this job is you have to make hard decisions with big players, with Marcelo are arguably a key example. And you have to manage a transition and take... And we, we don't know if Zidane or the club on an institutional level is actually up to it in that way because, because it's been such a slave to some of these figures. And I remember hearing when... In that spell when Zidane wasn't in the job and when Madrid were... We're, we're looking for the, the next big figure to take them on, that they looked at Pochettino and they looked at Conte. And they were very, very close to a deal with Conte until the, apparently the players were about to close to rebelling because they just, they didn't like w- what they heard about what they would have to do. And I mean, he, it's, it's an outrageous situation, yeah, really, isn't yeah. it? And then with Pochettino, with Pochettino wasn't severe as that. But the story I heard was that the players basically canvassed, you know, players like Courtois, to ask his Belgian teammates, like obviously a few of them, like Vertonghen and Alderweireld, have played under Pochettino, and just to, just to hear what it was like. And again, they they didn't they didn't they didn't like what they heard, basically. Which is, you know, <laughs> I remember talking to this with Ken Early, and Ken put it in great terms, like, can, can you imagine like Pochettino going to go into the go into the Madrid players and kind of saying like, okay, today we're going to you know. <laughs> It's going to be this intensity of level. You're going to, and we're going to have to make you know coordinate this this kind of level of runs. Almost players instructed to minute details and demanding a lot of them. And you can imagine some of the big players. Hey, Mister, how about fuck off? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure you'd even get the response from Sergio Ramos uh, yeah. anymore. <laughs> but how, how how can Real Madrid be prepared to ship? Gareth Bale away but not be prepared to ship based on the evidence of this match and we will come on to Valencia in a moment or two based on the evidence of this match this loss 4-1 not be prepared to shift Marcelo I think that that, that dressing room power has got an enormous yeah. amount to do with it and he's been not only a big personality in his own right who's grown at Madrid since he was a, a teenager and I remember most of that first year yeah. that he was playing left back for Real Madrid he was just getting told off by Arjen Robin, which, which yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a pretty difficult a pretty difficult adaptation to European football but he stayed through that very close mates with Cristiano Ronaldo and Ronaldo yeah. hasn't got a lot of close mates but I, I think that sort of power is important close to Sergio Ramos as well someone who's a, who's a real leader and that's something I mean sort of I've, I've mentioned it before in that um you almost need an outsider yeah. to pull the band-aid off in that situation and that's what Zidane is not. Exactly. So say, exactly. say for example, I mean I've, I've I think feel like I've talked about this quite recently, but when it came for the point for Bayern Munich to get rid of Bastian Schweinsteiger for example, there was no case in terms of him as a player for keeping him on. He was past mm. it and he proved that afterwards at yeah. Manchester United, didn't he? But it was extremely painful for Bayern to let someone go who was considered part of the, the heart, the soul, the family 
of the club. Guardiola was, well, fine, I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but Zidane can't do that, can yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. And it, just in relation to what you're saying about the power blocks, I, I, I recently did a piece on um, on James Rodriguez and kind of his, his mini resurgence and everything, even though it's kind of levelled out now. But um, someone connected to Madrid was basically telling me about the... Uh, how that dressing room is split, which is basically three groups. And the way it was put was, A, there's the kind of the Spanish contingent, obviously led by Sergio Ramos. Mm. B, there's the, the the kind of the foreign contingent. Modric is kind of a notional leader, but they're all kind of in awe of Ronaldo, even though he's gonna, he, was, he was separate to it. Mm. And then C, was the dickheads. And it was, <laughs> it was literally put as the dickheads, the, play, the players who could be difficult, we're just going to see as outsiders. But obviously the two main power blocks are Group A and B, and that's where the kind of standards of dressing room are set and where the power lies. And, it's in, and Marcelo almost kind of traverses both of those. But every, every so often Zidane gets to this point where you feel that his job's in danger. And because he's so, at least outwardly, sanguine, and as we know as a player, he mm. always kept it in right up until the point where he couldn't anymore and then just had to let it out in a flash of violence. But... The thing is, because he because he, he is how he is and because he knows Real Madrid so well, he is at least outwardly brilliant at managing the pressure yeah. at these at these big moments. Now, I think because they're doing okay in the Champions League, I think the, the result they got a few days before this against Inter in the yeah. Champions League is absolutely integral. If they had gone 2-0 up and then gone on to not win that game and they were brought back to 2-2 before Rodrigo scored the late winner... Then you stack this on the back of it, and he's really in the shit. Mm. But I, I think this in isolation, it feels such an anomaly, and not because of the penalties. Because how can you be in a position where you're losing to yeah. current Valencia, who are a total, they total mess? Well, they ain't all that and, at and all. They, they? They've been stripped of all their best players as mm. well. well. This is what I'm going to say, and it's why it's why this season is fascinating and potentially ominous, and I think why this result from a Valencia perspective is, is quite valuable because, I mean, with the way Spain has gone, and the financial gap has become so pronounced. Ultimately, to a certain degree, no matter how Madrid or Barca do, and this is almost proven by last season, they've got such, their, their money means they've got such a critical mass of quality in comparison to everyone else that they can fail and they'll still finish top two. One of them will still win the title by almost by default. And it will mean that they'll be competitive in Europe to a certain level. And that, to a degree, that's what happened even in their three European Cups. They're always going to be in the quarterfinal. Then after that, it's a little bit of potluck. I mean, I don't want to completely diminish what they did, but that is certainly part of it. Um, and maybe so, that doesn't happen this year. Yeah, it may, Hopefully that doesn't happen this year because I think A, it's healthier for football, obviously, for the vitality of the league. And B, it almost feels like the, the two clubs almost deserve to be punished for a certain complacency. And for, <laughs> and for not... Because uh, it feels neither really has that identity right now. Um, and so from that perspective, the Valencia was, was, was encouraging, even though it did feel so freakish on a number of levels. I mean, the, the one thing I would say for Valencia is, you know, Javi Gracia is a very impressive manager. Um, I mean, there must have been various points already where he's he's felt like quitting, even yeah, though he's yeah. not been in charge. I mean, there was talk about him quitting before they'd even played a league game because, yeah. uh, like, what happened in the what he was assured would happen in the transfer market that his departed players would be replaced didn't happen. On the other hand, what this has done is given an opportunity to some other younger players. Now, Kang and Lee had already made some dents. Uh, of a first team level and he came in and, and played in this very well but we should look at Eunice Musa, 17 year old Englishman who well he could have had a goal in this game if you think from the first Carlos Soler penalty um, 
he had it saved by Courtois, then hit the post and the rebound. Musa put it in mm. for 1-1, but they went back on the VAR and Musa was like a step in the box. So instead, they, they had the, well, all right, ref. I'm trying, <laughs> trying to be fair. Uh, and so, so any, anyway, we went back, Soler took the penalty and scored the first of his, is a hat trick of penalties. But we were talking about the internationals and, you know, there have been a few people excited about this young Englishman who's very exciting winger and getting his go at Valencia, having a go. <laughs> Born in New York City, called up this week yeah, for the yeah. USA. Well, <laughs> d- d- hold that thought. Hold that thought. He ain't a done deal yet because he's called up for USA in a friendly. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You yeah, know yeah. what that means. <laughs> he's having the little Declan Rice try. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. Have you not read Miguel's articles? <laughs> just hold that thought for a second. I suppose. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, on, it's worth mentioning Soler here. Actually, as a little bit of a tangent, because when there are that many penalties in the game, I, I think the advantage starts to recede for the kicker because it, beco- it becomes it, it doesn't almost become about execution it becomes about it's a game of poker and where, where, where you put it yeah. yeah and it was very impressive I thought that it, he went in the same cor- the exact same corner twice Did the it last Courtois, two yeah. Yeah, yeah but Courtois dived this, the right way each time didn't yeah, he? And he, still and be, yeah, he just yeah, yeah. missed it just yeah. missed it I, I think one goal he got a finger or so that, to that, it, or that, a tip that's of finger pretty, that's both great technique and great nerve yeah yeah um, having said all of this about Valencia and I, I feel bad that we've slightly disrespected them although it was a game where there's so many loose balls in this game I mean You've already mentioned the farcical own goal. That's <laughs> just like a comedy of errors. But each time Courtois seems to look at, well, look down when he knew the camera was pointed at him and kind of gave an expression. Look, it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault. That's, it wasn't my fault they got the penalty. That's a face that I'm time. used to seeing so often from Ica Casillas. Yeah. <laughs> even, even in peak Real Madrid, yeah, yeah. you know, the peak Galacticos era. And... I think that's the biggest concern, really, for Real Madrid, that Courtois, with the possible exception of Karim Benzema, he's been their best player this season. Yeah, yeah, yeah indeed. Uh, although this poor season for Real Madrid is balanced with the poor season for Barcelona. Is it? I wonder whether that's part of how they can get away with it, how Zidane can get away with this poor season now, because their big rivals aren't doing much better, are they? Well, I, I guess it, it shows you with, if Atletico go on, to win the league with Luis Suarez tearing everything up and <laughs> yeah. helping Joao Felix play the best football of his career. Obviously, that reflects terribly on Barcelona and it makes you think, go back to a year ago, uh, Miguel mentioned James Rodriguez. Now, Real Madrid were on the brink of selling him to Atletico and then, of course, they lost that infamous friendly in the US, yeah. 7-3 to Atletico and they're like, well, we can't give him James as well. Mm. So, who knows imagine, how that would have turned out. Imagine how that would have turned out. So it is the point in proceedings when we ask you both to nominate a game, a must-watch game for us. Miguel, first, do you have a game of the week? I'll go for Georgia-North Macedonia tonight because it's an international game that means so much to both countries. It's one of the good sides of the Nations League. I think that it's allowed this a play on a route to the European Championships. One of these countries never qualified for anything before. Uh, it will. Like, we're going to see pure emotion and I, and, I, and I do think actually having watched Georgia for a few times because they've been so consistently drawn against Ireland in like two two consecutive campaigns they're a decent side um, don't give up much always feel like they're on the cusp and I think we will see I mean you, you'll, see, you'll basically see a match that should showcase what international football is supposed to be about that's super important I think I think back to Euro 2016 and one of my favourite matches there was 
Albania against Romania because what it meant to Albania, even though they've been eliminated mm. from the tournament, for them to win a game at the Euros for their country, they were celebrating um, in, the, in, the, in the press area afterwards for, for about an hour and a half after the game mm. because it meant so much. Yeah. And, you know, th- th- those are the moments that tell you why international football is is still important. Are you listening to this, Mkhitaryan? <laughs> <laughs> with, with that in mind, I'm going to go for just the aesthetics. I'm going to go for Saturday night, Portugal versus France. France, the kind of France B team, had this really poor result against uh, Finland in the week. Uh, Portugal, I think you can read about as much into their 7-0 demolition of Andorra as you can to France versus Finland because um, it was just a turkey shoot. Um, but, you know, these are the teams who came up against each other, obviously, in the in, in the 2016 uh, European Championship final. The defending champions um, of the Euros against the world champions, even in the context and even in the fact that, you know, the international football is not that popular at the moment, I think it's going to be. And in the words of the Finnish football fans this week, Satan Perkili, we beat France, Satan Perkili. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the ACAST Creative Network.